Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On December 1st, we celebrate World AIDS Day, and in honor of that, we are going to be talking to Scott Chavez. He is the HIV Project Director at Lambda Legal. He's a friend of mine, and we're going to be talking about a whole range of issues, including stigma in the gay community, policy, legislation, and how the Trump administration continues to turn a blind eye to the epidemic. Let's dig in. We've got a lot to talk about. Hey, Scott. Hey, Eric. It's nice <laughs> to be sitting down with you today. Good to talk to you, too. So I'm excited to start with um, tomorrow, December 1st, marks uh, World AIDS Day. Can yes. you talk a little bit about um, your thoughts, where we stand? Yeah, you know, um, the thing that I always try and focus on around World AIDS Day is to get people to focus on the domestic epidemic, because I think there's a tendency, because it's World AIDS Day, mm-hmm. for people to talk uh, more broadly and internationally about the global epidemic, and sometimes overlook the epidemic that continues here in the United States. Um, and I'm excited. This year, actually, there is a, a plan being issued and endorsed by a large number of groups um, called the End the Epidemic uh, Plan. Okay. And it is a, um, it's sort of a substitute or a continuation, if you will, of the National HIV AIDS Strategy, which was, uh, which was implemented by the Obama administration the first time we had a National HIV AIDS uh, strategy was under the Obama administration, mm-hmm. which seems incredibly late to me in the game um, for us to finally have that strategy. But then that strategy was updated um, before uh, Obama left office. Unfortunately, we haven't seen a strong embrace of the strategy or uh, any real efforts to move it forward within the new Trump administration. Gee, um, what a surprise. Right. We'll come to that. <laughs> um And so the community itself, and really this started in a number of states, including New York being one of the primary ones, um, that created an end the epidemic plan. So it's an ambitious plan that sort of, it was even more ambitious than the national HIV AIDS strategy in terms of setting a goal of actually ending the epidemic um, and getting uh, new infections down to a place where it would no longer be considered an epidemic, right? Mm-hmm. An epidemic is when there are more, uh, an un, uh, unduly high number of uh, cases of anything, right? When you're talking about an epidemic. And so this would be bringing it down to a level where that's kind of what we would expect. Okay. Um, and the and the epidemic national plan is, uh, is sort of uh, came out of these states and is designed to put us on a course and to create a roadmap for getting to a place where across the United States we would have ended the epidemic. Wow. And, um, you know, the, the goals that it's trying to achieve are actually goals that are set by the UN. Okay. Um, and, and there's a date by which, you know, this is supposed to happen. Yeah. And I believe it's 2030. The idea is that we would end the epidemic wow. in the United States by 2030. Um, so it's exciting that that plan is coming out, um, and um, hopefully, you know, it will be embraced by uh, the community, if not the administration. Right, and we'll post that uh, plan on our website so folks can see. Right. And I guess let's go ahead and dig right in and talk about the administration and its failure to um, 
you know, address in a substantive way a strategy for um, addressing the HIV AIDS epidemic in the U.S. Um, you know, Vice President Pence in particular has a storied and horrible history of provoking an HIV outbreak, I think, in his state in, in Indiana. Can you talk about um, the lack of um, this administration to either take seriously or just its outright failure? Yeah. So, I mean, and and this has a lot to do with why I ended up resigning from the uh, presidential advisory Oh, and conference. tell us about that. I mean, come on, that's a big, that's yeah, a big so, point. Um, it became clear. Um, so I was serving on the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV and AIDS, uh, appointed under the Obama administration, and um, and had some time left on my uh, on my tenure on my term when Trump was elected. Uh, so I suddenly found myself uh, now serving on a council <laughs> for a president that um, I knew I was in strong disagreement with. Um, but nonetheless, I uh, decided to stay on that council after Trump was elected in order to uh, to try to have uh, present a voice uh, mm-hmm. and, and influence policy, uh, try to get this, administ- this new administration to understand the importance of continuing to address the epidemic and even just the fact that the epidemic continues in the United States and that people are still dying. Um, and But after about four or five months, it became clear Maybe even less than that. Um, it became clear that this... It, a day under Trump feels like 10, so I can understand. That's right. That's right. It became clear that this that there just wasn't going to be any meaningful way for us to influence this administration or this policy uh, or their policies. And, you know, part of that is this administration is anti-science. So if people actually aren't going to want to talk uh, facts right. and uh, and what the science is actually telling us, then I don't know how to convince people like that and, and persuade them. Uh, so a, a number of us, uh, I guess I was sort of the leader of this uh, <laughs> band, um, decided that uh, we would resign. Um, and if we were going to resign, we would try to uh, make it a, as big a splash as possible um, to, to garner as much attention. We actually did it Intentionally, in the middle of the debate around the ACA okay. and their attempts to repeal the ACA, yeah. which I guess I should say, it's apathy on the part of the administration. Like I really believe that this is an issue that President Trump doesn't care about. Right. Um, so it isn't that he even has a position; he just doesn't care. Um, but beyond that, there was all this effort to get rid of the ACA. And um, when you're going to do things to affirmatively undermine the progress that we have been making around HIV, and, and the ACA had a lot to do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, providing care, consistent care to people, um, is important not only for the people living with HIV, but for the people at risk of HIV. Yeah. You know, if you're in regular care, well, then there's a greater chance that you know you're going to get an HIV test regularly and get diagnosed, or you're going to be on prep, um, and so. Uh, it was helping us to make progress, and then they were attacking it. And so that was final, sort of the final straw that made us decide to, to go out and resign. And I would say we did a, a fairly good job of getting some uh, attention paid yeah. to the issue. I saw you on the news. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so, um, so that was great. And you know, the, the End the Epidemic paper that I was just talking about that is coming out, I think also does a really good job of explaining 
um, not only how HIV-specific policies, but about how a bunch of other policies related to uh, the black community, related to immigrants, um, related to transgender people, mm-hmm. affect the HIV epidemic. Mm-hmm. And that until we uh, administration changes course, or maybe we have a new administration. Right. Um, we change the course. But that all those policies... They don't exist in a vacuum. So right. when you're creating an environment in which uh, immigrants are afraid uh, to even let people know they exist, right? Um, then they're not going to engage in care. They're, and if they're not going to be engaged people in the same way with health care and access and being scared that their doctor might not understand them, turn them away. That's right. And and just you know, this administration is really trying to erase transgender people altogether. Indeed. And pretend that you know they don't exist. Um, when in fact, and in the HIV space, that is a, a, a target population. That's a population that is very disproportionately impacted by HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to be creating programs that not only acknowledge their existence, but that are supporting them, are reaching out to them. Yeah. And so uh, all those things work very uh, against um, the effort to reduce new transmissions, to get people in care, and to really have the uh, the ability to end the epidemic. And I remember, I think it was last year on World AIDS Day that uh, the Trump administration made some kind of announcement to honor or acknowledge um, the day, but failed to even mention the LGBT That's community right. at all. That's right. And so we see from this administration, when they are willing to talk about HIV, they don't want to actually acknowledge mm-hmm. the populations uh, in which it is having the most disproportionate impact. So not talking about the gay community, not talking about the transgender community, not even, uh, maybe they did talk about communities of color in that uh, statement, I can't remember. Yeah. But, um, but not like gay and bisexual um, men of color uh, who are disproportionately affected. Right. I mean, it's very, it's done in a very pro forma sort of way. Um, you know, in on those uh, highlighted days, they feel like they have to. Same thing happened actually after we resigned. It was it was right around? Oh, I want to say it was one of the the world, you know, one of the AIDS days, right? AIDS uh-huh. awareness days, and they scrambled at that point to put together something for that particular day. Well, they but don't have staff that even cares. That's right? right. Like that's right. I mean, with all apologies to the couple of good people that we know in some of the agencies who are doing hard work under this administration. And it's more than a couple. Advising. I mean, there's right. there's that's lots true. of good people left in HHS doing good work. Uh, you know, they're not the visible folks. It's uh, the it's the ground level folks. I don't know how they keep it up. I don't know how they do it either. <laughs> All right. Well, I just saw you would you had mentioned um, the Trump administration was moving to lower Medicare drug costs by relaxing some patient protections, mm. and you had responded about how that might impact access to medication. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is something new that we're just uh, hearing about, and um, what they're actually doing is. Uh, there were six classes of medications under Medicare um, that were protected classes. So um, in, in what the protection did was it required that the plans ha- uh, cover all the drugs in that class. Okay. Um, and so it ensured, for instance, that you know if you have HIV, HIV AIDS was one of the protected classes, okay. so they had to cover all the medications. And that meant that whatever medication you were on, you were going to be able to get it yeah. um, through your prescription drug plan with, uh, with Medicare. 
what the what they're proposing to do in ostensibly to lower drug prices is give the plans uh, the option of not covering some of those drugs. So some people are going to be thrown off their not have access to right. their current and, medication. Um, and what this does, well, it may indeed create uh, an ability to negotiate uh, on the side of the of the plans. Um, what they're going to end up doing is getting rid of the expensive medications right, from sure. the formularies. So then you have a system where, oh, now there's a more affordable plan, but it only covers, it doesn't cover the, the more expensive medications. So yes, it's more affordable and usable for the people who are relatively healthy, um, but for people who have a chronic condition, now their drugs are no longer in that affordable plan, and now they're going to be uh, you know, segregated into a much more expensive plan. So it's really, it's completely against the idea of insurance. Yeah. Right? The idea of insurance is we you look pool out the for risk. the most right. You get everybody into one so, so that, that the, the healthy folks, the younger folks can be paying in to support folks in need. That's right. But this this just typifies everything that's awful about this administration and its lack of caring about folks at the margins. Just well, that's right. And, and I mean, I, I want to put in there that, yes, it's about those folks paying for the, the folks currently in need right now, but... The idea of insurance is that any one of them could become one of the people in need. I mean, they, oh, yeah. they're at risk too. Right. And so it isn't, you're paying to pool the risk, and everybody has risk. So let's talk about some good things. I um, just noticed this morning that here in New York, the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene um, released a report to the Daily News that 2000, around 2,000 people were newly diagnosed with HIV in 2017, which is down 5.4% from those diagnosed in 2016, which was a record low that year. And it's a 64% drop since the city began reporting new HIV diagnoses in 2001. Can you talk about the advances that we're seeing in some of the cities? And localities, states that are taking this seriously and actually doing something. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, so it has an upside, and I would say there was a downside. But first, let's talk about the upside, right? I mean, that's how we framed it, so yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, the, as I was saying before, right, there was this plan that was put in place several years ago in New York that's New York's and the epidemic plan. Okay. And um, we're seeing uh, the benefits of that. There's other localities that are having similar success. San Francisco is a good example. And it is the places where there are the most progressive, uh, inclusive uh, policies being put into place. Places that are focusing on providing greater access to prep and ensuring that PrEP doesn't become, you know, just for the privileged few um, or just for uh, particular communities, but that there is, it's getting out to all the communities that need it. Um, And so, yes, you can create, I think, in those places a a good result. Um, The the downside um, is that we're missing... there are other parts of the country, right, that um, we're going sort of the opposite direction. Um, and, and really, we've seen HIV move over the past 15 years into the South okay. uh, in a major way. 
And it is in those uh, southern states and southern cities where, uh, unfortunately, uh, there there was no Medicaid expansion like there has been in a place like New York. And yeah. there are, um, you know, that resisted having an ACA marketplace, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and there's other barriers in terms of all the things we were just talking about, yeah. in terms of uh, trans rights and uh, the, how the uh, you know, uh, lower-income communities are, are treated, um, that where the epidemic is getting worse. And it just it kind of makes, I mean, unfortunately, it makes sense, right, where you, where you ignore the populations that are most affected or where there's so much stigma um, around being gay um, or being transgender. Um, and that's where we're going to see the worst outcomes. What's it like to do work in those places, right? Like, I mean, you're, you're situated in Chicago. I'm here in New York City. But I'm sure you do work all across the country. And we'll talk a little bit about your um, Lambda Legal's work in Michigan. But what's it like to do um, the work that you do in places in the South, in rural communities, you know, I have a case right now down in uh, Louisiana um, on behalf of a person who applied. I mean, he was already working as a policeman, uh, and then he applied to be a sheriff's deputy in um, a, a parish down there, Iberia Parish. And uh, once they discovered, he was like on track. He had basically had a job offer, mm-hmm. and then they discovered he was HIV positive, and the job he was no longer being considered. Um, but I was talking to um, a doctor down there, I mean, deposing a doctor. Mm-hmm. And this is someone who should have, you know, pretty good knowledge. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> God. And yes, we'd hope. Yeah, but it was amazing, like, how little this doctor actually knew about HIV, um, about the latest care and treatment, um, about the fact that uh, you have, you know, if you are personally living with HIV are, and are in treatment, that there, it, uh, there is no risk of transmission sexually, that is essentially zero. And it just made me realize how far behind um, some of who you would think should know this information can right. be in a place like the, the rural South. So what about, um, let's talk a little bit more about litigation. Um, uh, this month, the Michigan Department of Corrections reached a settlement um, with uh, Lambda Legal over um, a federal law, um, you know, to comply with federal law. Can you talk a little bit about the case that you brought and how that ended? Yeah, I'm really excited about this, um, about this case, about this result. Um, we didn't talk about it a whole lot at, at the beginning. We waited until we had moved this along to a victory. Um, so now I want to talk about it. That's as a different as strategy. Okay. Yeah. Um, although we find that on our HIV criminalization cases in general, mm-hmm. sometimes it's not as easy to to uh, to get people to understand or to get them to buy in okay. until they see that there's a victory. Um, it's just an area where I think there's still enough misinformation and uh, misunderstanding about how these HIV criminalization laws operate. And can we talk about, as you go into the specifics of this case and the settlement, a little bit about HIV criminalization more broadly for folks that may not really understand? Yeah, so HIV criminalization involves the uh, the use of the criminal law to essentially uh, punish people disproportionately, uh, sometimes with decades in prison, for engaging in sexual conduct while living with HIV. 
Um, now, they are oftentimes hooked on, well, if you did not disclose your status, then you can be punished. Although I would argue that it can be a really difficult thing to prove that you disclosed your status. So the laws operate in a way that almost makes it you're putting yourself at risk every time as a person living with HIV that you have sex. <laughs> um, we like to say that everybody uh, that, well, we don't like to say it, but you could say that uh, people living with HIV are just one jilted ex away from being incarcerated because, you know, you have an ex, a bad breakup, and then that person says, well, he didn't tell me that he was HIV positive before we had sex. And now that could land them in jail in places. And these laws don't take into account. <clears throat> Um, oftentimes, um, modern science, modern science, or the fact that they were maybe, written long, long ago. That's right, and so, um, so that's in general what HIV criminalization is. In this case, it's in the context of a of prison that this all played out. So this was a gentleman who had become he'd been in for a while, but he had been a model prisoner. He was at the very lowest level of uh, of, a, of security. Um, in fact, he could even have special privileges to like go into the the control room where they like locked and unlocked doors oh, okay. uh, to be in there. So very much at the lowest level um, of security. And uh, he ended up having a sexual encounter. He actually had oral sex, um, allegedly, with another uh, prisoner, which, of course, in prison is, is considered misconduct. You're not allowed to do that in prison. Right. But... Um, when it came, because he was HIV positive under a policy that they had in place, the other guy who was HIV negative um, got 30 days loss of privileges. Okay. Whereas our client, who was HIV positive, um, ended up being placed at the very highest level of security and into solitary confinement. Oh my God. For 11 months in solitary confinement. And then That's he was favorite. moved out of that, but. Well, and really not out of that. It's like a, just a different name or a different... He was still in solitary confinement at a lower level of security for uh, another 11 months. So 22 months in uh, solitary confinement oh when the activity in which he gauged oral sex is not really even a way in which HIV is transmitted. Right. I mean, we, we pretty much established there's a very, very, very low risk, if any, mm -hmm. from oral sex. Um, and then he had an undetectable viral load. Which did he have access to medication? Sure. So right. he, you know, at, in prison, you you're going to get access to medication. Uh -huh. Care's not always always great in every prison, but right. he was getting care, and he had an undetectable viral. So load. no risk. So there was no possible risk of transmission, and yet this was the result of this policy. So. Um, so we've been fighting that, and they, you know, they fought us. Uh, we litigated this case for a long time, but while he remained in solitary ah, confinement, so they we actually uh, ended up suing after he came out of solitary confinement. Good God! So this was retrospective, which makes the case a little bit easier to uh, uh, to do, and and not, you know, feel like how do we get him, you know, the relief he needs immediately. Um, so he was out, but uh, in the end, we got them to change the policy. Um, there's still a, you know, they still look at a person's HIV status, but now, um, under the federal law, the, the Rehabilitation Act, mm -hmm. they have to find that there is a significant risk of transmission. Okay. Not that there's just any risk of transmission, which is how it was written before. And, um... And we have it in there that you have to take into account the type of sex at issue. You have to take into account whether there were any measures used to reduce the risk of transmission, like, for instance, being on treatment. And that's all now written right into the policy. So 
Um, we're very pleased. I think uh, they actually ended up moving two people out of administrative segregation. Oh, great. Based on our changes. So that was excellent. And then uh, we were able to get the client a nice sum of money, um, although I will say not nowhere near enough to compensate him for the horrors that he experienced um, while he was in solitary confinement. It's, it is a, a cruel and unusual punishment, and um, you know, there have been other cases now that have just talked about solitary confinement. I'm sure. That talk about how um, hor- the, the effect it has on a person's mental health. So, um, 22 months. Right. And this is 23 hours a day in a cell. Uh, on the weekends, 24 hours a day. It's it's awful. Okay, talking a bit more about some good news. What about on the... So let's talk about on the policy front. What kind of legislative and policy advocacy have we seen bear fruit and like really make a difference? I remember there was the um, Iowa law that you worked really hard on. This was a decriminalization law. Um, but are there other important policies that you're working on and, and advancing? Yeah, you know, it's a tough time, I think, um, certainly be doing, to be advancing anything at the federal level. Sure. It's just not an environment in which we're going to have a ton of success. Although, you know, some things we've been able to play good defense on. And at and least we can protect the ACA with the House now. And I mean, they can still probably tinker around the edges and make it awful, but... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's good not going to repeal. Right. <laughs> um, it's good that we now have uh, control of one chamber. That will also help us to ensure um, continuation and, and maybe some increases in the, the funding for things like Ryan White, which is the HIV AIDS uh, funding that comes from the federal government. Um, so some of those things it were, are better. But however, there are attacks under the ACA that are now happening in the courts as well. Yeah. And that's something that we are worried about. The existing conditions. Well, the right. So that um, there was uh, there's a litigation coming out of Texas that is uh, attempting to say that the whole ACA is not only the the tax uh, the mandate, uh, but that um, the other portions of the ACA are also uh, un- unconstitutional. And unfortunately, this administration, instead of defending the law is actually agreeing with yeah. the people that are trying to take it down. So so there's work to be done there. I, I would say that, um, so there's a couple places where we're seeing some, some good stuff happening. Um, one is on HIV criminalization. Um, in, in addition to the Iowa, uh, the changes in Iowa that you mentioned, um, last year we got California to uh, really fix its law and uh, take it to a place where it is uh, pretty much a, a model uh, for the rest of the country, okay, and um, and, and that's great because uh, that change there was actually affecting um, sex workers in a in a really disproportionate way, um, and um, so that the change is inclusive of sex workers, and now we're hoping we're done with uh, HIV-based criminal prosecutions in California. Wow, and. Um, and I'm working in a number of other states. Uh, some of them will be more challenging than California, but um, but hopefully we will see changes in other states. I'm working right now in Florida and Illinois and Indiana and Ohio and wow. just a whole bunch of places. Great. I can't wait to get you working in New York then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, New York is one of the places that doesn't have an HIV-specific criminal law but does have prosecutions that happen under the general criminal laws. So that's another problem. Uh, Another thing, and actually this did happen in New York, and I'm excited about this. Um, New York 
the insurance commissioner here, and maybe I might have the right title, but whoever runs the insurance Uh-oh. department. I have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> in, okay. in New York. Um, Our ish, apologies. Right. <laughs> if you're a fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but the person issued uh, a, a statement uh, saying that insurance companies that do not provide uh, PrEP, uh, so we're talking, I'm sorry, not life, not health insurance, but that if you are refusing to provide life insurance to someone who is taking PrEP, that that is illegal. And um, so that is fantastic uh, because... We've seen that happen in other places. We've seen this happening um, in New York, I think, as well. Wow. um, Where someone, because they're taking PrEP, uh, is being denied life insurance or long-term care insurance or disability insurance. And it's a completely backwards policy. I mean, they're basing it uh, the insurance companies, they think, well, if a person's taking PrEP, that means that they are at a higher risk. They're engaged in higher risk okay. sexual activities, sure. which is true. You you have to go in and represent to a doctor that you are engaged in higher risk sexual activities in order to get a prescription for PrEP. Um, what's stupid about it is that, well, they're actually punishing the people who are going and taking the preventive measure that's necessary, whereas someone who's engaged in the exact same activities but is not taking PrEP, would be able to get the life insurance. So um, there's a case, actually, that the GLAD has been doing uh, in Boston on this. and then, uh, But now we're seeing states start to step in, and New York has been at the forefront. Now we're hoping to, to make this happen in other states. Wow. So that's, a, that's another good thing. That's great. And um, so maybe we could just, I mean, do you have any thoughts or can you talk a little bit about about PrEP and, and its effectiveness and, and um, there was some controversy when it came out and certainly it's, cert- it's not affordable and accessible to everyone. Yeah. Do you have any short, you know, we could go into a whole conversation, yeah, yeah. but like. So a, a couple things I'll say about okay. it. One. Um, and for folks that I'm, I'm assuming folks know what PrEP is. Right. So PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis, and it is uh, two medications, uh, but they're taken as a single tablet, um, that are HIV medications, but uh, basically they, uh, you take it on a regular basis and it builds up in your bloodstream so that if you are exposed to HIV sexually, that um, it won't have a chance to actually take root. Uh, the the virus will basically be knocked down so quickly by these HIV medications that it, you'll never be, become HIV positive. Um, it's super effective. Um, there are some instances where people have uh, contracted HIV while on PrEP, mm-hmm. but it's very rare. Very rare. And it happens generally because maybe they come across a strain of the virus that is resistant to the, the medications that are used in PrEP. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the, the main reason that it could happen, but it, very effective. Uh, it's the, the percentage is somewhere in the 90s. It's as effective as, it's more effective than condoms. So I think people, it's important for people to hear that. Um, and I will say, uh, for, just from a personal perspective, it has changed like my, uh, my dating life. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and what it's like to be a person living with HIV. So I have a person living with HIV for folks who, are, who aren't aware of that. And um, you know, to be on Grindr, to be on you know, any of these apps, uh, you get a much different reaction from people who are taking PrEP, or just in general from people now. Yeah. Um, I think both because they know about PrEP, and then they also know about U equals U. 
um, which stands for undetectable equals untransmittable. Uh, and it's this uh, very clear uh, uh, axiom now that people yeah. who are have an undetectable viral load as a result of being in treatment are have essentially no risk of transmitting HIV to right. their partner sexually. So between those two things, the it has changed, right. um, and the stigma within the community has started to go down. I will say, it was pretty high um, yeah. for a lot of years. And um, so there's a huge change. Now, dovetailing from there, while it has become, the uptake within the community has been good. Um, one, we're, we don't do a great job of providing it to people who, who are lower income or um, in certain communities, we're not seeing the same kind of uptake. Right. Um, and, and that's as a result of access. Um, so we need to do a better job of ensuring that Everyone who in the gay community that wants access has it, but that also is getting into other communities that need it, the transgender community, um, bisexual community, um, and within uh, straight communities where there are higher rates and risks of transmission. So women who are at a higher risk um, need to know about PrEP and have access to PrEP as well. Sex workers need to have access to PrEP, and um, we need to figure out how we ensure that access across the board. This has been such an interesting conversation. Um, and there are so many other things that we could get into. The stigma, I'm glad we did talk a little bit about the changing attitudes um, in the gay community itself because I do remember, you know, seeing even just as recently as when we were doing, when you were doing the Iowa litigation. Um, you know, we do a post about, what was the gentleman's name? Rhodes. Nick Rhodes. Nick Rhodes. Um, we would do a post on Facebook, and it was around HIV criminalization, and it would bring out people from the gay community who were saying, you know, things about, well, lock him up. I mean, just... Yeah, no, no. There were horrible things said. Um, I mean, we had to tell the client, like, don't read the comments. Right. Um, even from within the community, which is one of the reasons why this is so challenging, is um, there are still misconceptions um, yeah. within the community, much less outside of the community. And I will say, um, to me, a rather frustrating um, attitude from um, from some of my HIV-negative uh, gay brothers um, that they want to be able to have whatever sex they want. Right, there's no responsibility. Right. right. The responsibility is all on somebody else to disclose all of these things where, what precautions are you taking? Right. What are, you know, take it, right, go ahead. And, well, the <laughs> and, and the fact is but that, I agree. while having that person uh, disclose to you, well, one, let's just face it, you want that person to disclose to you so that you can reject them, right? You want it so that you can avoid them. Um, the people who, who feel like that's really important, that's what they want. Um, so it, it's a mechanism by which you're going to reject this person. But my frustration is, well, what about the person who doesn't know they have HIV? What are you doing to protect yourself from that? Like, that this person happens to have it and can tell you, um, that doesn't reduce the risk because that person could have it and not know. Yeah. And so... It's a, it's an you know it's an anti actual prevention strategy and um, and so hopefully um, now that people have, are getting a little more knowledge, mm -hmm. recognizing and I actually say this and I, people still have trouble wrapping their heads around this. It is safer to have sex with someone that you've met on Grinder <laughs> who is HIV positive and undetectable. 
than it is to have sex with someone who thinks they're HIV positive, uh, HIV negative, was HIV negative at their last test, but has had sex with six people since then without a condom. And so it's a little bit hard for people to think about that, but it's true. Wow. Because if that person is, has been exposed and is now HIV positive, they are highly infectious. Yeah. Makes, it makes person, total sense, but no one really thinks about it. So thanks for... Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I always like to end with, if you have any advice for, we have a lot of attorneys, judges, um, activists who listen to this podcast. Do you have any advice for folks who want to get involved about ways that they can get involved? Mm. Um, well... Actually, yes. Um, first, come and join. No one's ever said no. <laughs> right. But, yeah, go right. but I do see it light up in your eyes. Right. So, um, so I was going to say, come and uh, join Lambda Legal's uh, cooperating attorney database. Okay. Um, we're always looking for have more people in our cooperating attorney database. And these are, you know, folks call us all the time and uh, we... We do impact work, and so you know we're taking on a very limited number of cases in order to advance the law. And so we love to have other folks to whom we can refer people, yep. um, who we know are going to be um, LGBT and HIV friendly. Yep. Um, and then um, I would just say to everyone uh, that's listening to this podcast is to to make sure you know the latest around HIV. And um, to be an advocate within the community. That's right. And, and to help uh, others bring along members of our own community on this and really know the facts uh, about transmission, how it is and how it is not transmitted, and, um, and then how we, uh, how we now have all these prevention mechanisms that will further reduce those risks. That's awesome. And I can't let you go at being a theater person. All right, you're in town. What are you seeing? I didn't see anything this That's trip. That's outrageous. I know, I know. Um, but I've heard amazing things. I'm unfriending things you on about, Facebook. I've heard amazing. <laughs> uh, you know what? I was too busy working, Eric. All right, all right. Um, I've heard amazing things about the prom. I know. We're, we're actually going next week. And this gives me a chance to plug that if you're a legal member or if you're just a friend and you want to attend the prom, you can attend. And we're partnering with Hetrick Martin Institute so that you can send um, for just $60 an LGBT youth to go with you and your date to prom. They're, they won't be sitting with you on your date, but around <laughs> um, so that they can see, you know, have access to musical theater that they may not have been able to see. So please do get involved. I'll post that link too so you can buy your tickets. Um, but we're excited about it. Yeah, no, I think that's awesome. Wait. I'm so glad you're, you're Head doing Over that. Heels was wonderful. There's a lot of good stuff. Torch Song. Torch Song. I heard the I see <gasps> Torch, Torch Song. Song great. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Scott. And um, yeah. Best of luck. Safe travels back to Chicago. Come Thanks, visit Sarah. us in New York soon.